Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Jeff has our scripture and prayer this morning. Good morning. I'm going to read to you from Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead and stand for the reading of the word. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. job, my calling, my assignment is to teach you the Bible. And sometimes in teaching the Bible, it appeals to your emotion. Sometimes the Bible appeals to you experientially. The common experience that we have all had is that 
When Christ has taken up residence in us, we've become aware of our own sinfulness, our own depravity, and then the joy of his salvation. That's an experience that we all as Christians share. Sometimes the Bible approaches us intellectually. We've certainly been reading about the wisdom that is a gift from God in the book of Proverbs on Wednesday night. Certainly you couldn't read the first couple chapters of Ephesians without engaging your brain and without understanding it on an intellectual level. I like it when I get to preach these sections of the Bible that appeal to you emotionally because then you leave and you go, wow, that that really touched me. I really felt that. But in Romans 15, where we are this morning, as we've been going verse by verse through the book of Romans, we're about to land on a verse that, in my way of thinking, if you understood it correctly, if you understood it historically, if you understand it contextually the way Paul is saying it, it will clear up a whole lot of theological issues. There are people debating all the time out there on the TV and the radio and the internet, debating about Israel's continued standing before God, God's relationship with Israel, God's faithfulness to Israel. Hopefully, that would have all been solved by what we looked at in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We would have seen God's continual commitment to Israel nationally. But Paul is going to say something today that uh, even Jeff this morning when he read, and we did not conspire, I did not tell him what to read this morning, but in the verses from Colossians that he read, he said, in Christ there's neither male or female, there's neither free nor bond, there's neither barbarian, Scythian, there's neither Jew, Gentile, you know. And so people sometimes glom on to that idea that in Christ there's no separation between nationalities anymore. And they will say, well, there, God must be done with physical national Israel because in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no separation, no division between them. And yet, as we've been seeing all the way through the book of Romans, Paul continues to make those kinds of divisions. He continues to say that this is true of Jews and this is true of Greeks. And he's writing to two different bodies of believers in Rome, one a Jewish body, one a Greek body. Am I talking really, really fast this morning? Okay. I'm trying to get the introductory comments out of the way. Paul is about to say that God sent Christ to the planet, both for the Jews and for the Gentiles, and that his purpose to each of them was different. He's about to divide that purpose again in Christ, even though in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, free or bond, male or female, and yet Paul clearly makes a distinction between male and female within the church and says that males can have certain offices, certain roles that females can't have. So it's not like he's erased the distinctions. He understands that there is still male and female. He understands that there is still free and bond. What he's saying is that Christ accepts every person, every strata, that God is no respecter of persons, and therefore, whatever your station in life, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're free, whether you're a bond servant, whether you're male, whether you're female, you can come to Christ. But then once you have come to Christ, your distinctions don't disappear. My daughter is still a female. You can't get away from that. Did you actually go, whew, really? Is that what happened? 
Okay, just checking. My wife, thank goodness, is still female. Very Christian, still female. And there are distinctions between us, male and female, but we are both in Christ. Well, Paul is going to make one of those comments this morning where he's going to say that even though there's no Jew, no Gentile in Christ, still within the church, the Jewish and the Gentile distinctions continue on. Now, I know as we've been going through Romans 9, 10, and 11, I have just beat this subject to death. And I know you're probably all tired of hearing me beat this to death, but we can't avoid what Paul is about to say. And if you understand what Paul says, you're going to understand that the whole Jew-Gentile distinction within the church still exists in Paul's mind. It's still standard Pauline theology, and he's going to say that all the promises that God made to Israel are still confirmed in Christ. So then what are those? What are the promises of God that are made distinctly to Israel that are not made to the Gentiles? What are those promises that are made not to the church but to national Israel? In fact, he's going to reach all the way back to the forefathers, the progenitors. He's going to reach back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say those promises are confirmed, are still good because God sent Christ. Christ is the surety. He is the guarantee that those things are still true. And it seems to me that if you just plainly read and understood what Paul has said, then that would clarify a whole lot of theological wrangling that goes on out there. We're in Romans chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 4 because this is an essential point especially in introducing what we're about to look at. And we're going to look at a lot of the Bible this morning. Because, as I said, my job is to teach you the Bible. But if you walk out this morning getting it, if you walk out this morning engaging your brain and getting what I'm about to show you, it really will clear up a whole lot of debates. Chapter 15, verse 4 says... Whatever was written in earlier times, as I mentioned last week, Paul there is referring to what we would call the Old Testament. Those were the only scriptures that were extant when he was writing this letter. So his references to the scriptures is always back to what we would refer to as the Old Testament. And he says all those things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction. We have talked about this and debated this off and on through the years. What's the point of the Old Testament? You know, we've been teaching book by book through the Old Testament for a very long time. And what is the point? Well, it's all for our teaching, for our instruction, so that we can understand the character, the nature of God. We can learn a great deal about God by reading his law, even though we're not under his law. Even though Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, nevertheless, by looking at the law, we can learn a great deal about God, his character, his nature, even his expectations. So whatever was written beforehand, whatever was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That word hope, El peace, 
I've told you before, means a confident looking forward to something you know is going to happen. So Paul has just said, through the Old Testament, you can learn things that God has said he's going to do, things that are going to happen And because we have confidence in the scripture that it is the very word of God, those things, having been said by God, are going to come true. And that gives us confidence. That gives us encouragement. We know that this world is not the know-all and end-all of everything. We know that this world is still under the hand of an absolutely sovereign God who's doing everything according to his own good pleasure. Why do we know that? Because the Old Testament says it. We don't have to look in the New Testament to find that sovereign predestinary God. All you have to do is go back and look at David writing, where is your God? That's what the heathen will say. And his answer is, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All you got to do is go back and look at the book of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar saying that all the inhabitants of the earth are like nothing. And God does all his good pleasure among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. You can find all that out by looking at the Old Testament. So that gives us encouragement. That gives us confidence that God is going to see us through whatever he brings our way. And that gives us hope. So we persevere through this life because of the encouragement that we get from the scriptures. When you have a hard time, when you have a difficult time, when things aren't going your way... Sometimes you can go back and just read the Bible and something will jump out at you and just reaffirm you and give you confidence and give you hope and remind you that you're not alone in this world, that God is caring about the things that are happening to you. That's what Paul's writing about, that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we end up having this expectation of what we know is coming And so it is God, says verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you. So Paul sees a very sovereign God here who gives you perseverance and encouragement. He's the one that picks you up every day and says, keep going. He's the one that gives you the perseverance to deal with the troubles, the trials, the difficulties of this life. But at the same time that he's causing you to persevere through the hardships of this life, recognizing that he is the God that brought the hardship in the first place, he's also the God that's going to take you through that hardship, and along the way, he's going to encourage you. Along the way, he's going to lift you up. He's going to satisfy your heart to get up and go again. So he's the God who gives Perseverance, he's the one who gives encouragement, but also then Paul says, may that same God grant you within the church, Jew and Gentile, everybody within the church at Rome, and then by extension the church at large, may God grant you to be of the same mind. In the Greek what that means is, think the same thoughts. May you all think the same things. Within the church, you don't get the opportunity to just make up your own stuff. You can say, well, I believe that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. (laughs) Nobody has to believe that because that's not the sound doctrine that Paul has already laid out. Paul has already told you what the foundation is. 
He has already told you that every man is going to build on that foundation, but be careful how you build because God's going to try it as by fire. But the foundation doesn't change. The foundational doctrines, the foundational teaching about Christ and about God, that's already been established. And so God then, by revealing to you his word, his will, his character, by revealing himself to you through his word, He brings you to that point of same-mindedness, that same thoughtfulness, that same understanding. And the only way that any church can have a unity of thinking, a unity of what's important, of understanding God, of understanding his word, the only way we can all have that is if we all agree that the buck stops here. Whatever else you think, whatever you want to imagine, whatever you've created, whatever you've made up, if it isn't in here, doesn't count for anything. That's what creates one-mindedness. So Paul says, I'm praying that the God who gives you perseverance and who gives you encouragement would also grant you to be of that same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. I have told you many times Christianity is Christocentric. Christ is at the center of it. Christ is the beginning of it. He's the end of it. He's the alpha. He's the omega. It's all about Christ. That's the foundation that Paul said he has already laid. There is no other foundation but Christ, Paul says. So then, as we continue... To learn about God, to learn about Christ, to learn about what he has accomplished for us and what he plans for us, we all come to this experiential unity of the mind. So that we are in fellowship, so that we are in brotherhood, because we all believe the same thing. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That with one accord, with one mindedness, with one single unity of thought, that with one accord you may with one voice. Now Paul has taken it past think the same thing and has now said Say the same thing. What we believe about Christ and what we say about Christ needs to be the same thing. How are we going to have that kind of unity? Only if we're all saying what's already in the book. If we're already saying what the inspired scripture has told us to say, then we're all going to believe and say the same thing. That's the standard. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody. Everybody has a tradition. Everybody grew up with something that they just thought was true and they thought was perhaps even biblical or Christian that turns out not to be in the Bible. The example that I like to use is that my grandmother used to say, well, God helps those who help themselves. That was not the Bible. That was Benjamin Franklin. But she believed that if she ever picked up a Bible and looked at it, she would find somewhere in there that God helps those who help themselves. But that's not biblical. That's an extra thought. In fact, what the Bible says is just the opposite. It says God helps those who can't help themselves. It's the helpless ones. It's the sinners. It's the depraved, fallen ones. That's who God helps. 
but she was convinced of it because that was her background. That was her tradition. Well, we all have those. We all carry those around with us because we assume from our background, from our history, from our parents, from our society, we all assume that that's the way that Christianity ought to work. Christianity is definable. Christianity is specific, and it is defined in the word. It has a foundation, and it has sound, fundamental doctrines that you need to hold to. And then if you hold to those, you are going to think, and you are going to say the same thing. Why am I comfortable leaving here next week and calling Micah and saying, Micah, would you stand in the pulpit? I guard this pulpit pretty fiercely. I don't let anybody stand up here and I don't turn the saints of God over to them unless I'm fully confident that they're going to be teaching the same thing. Well, it's because I know Micah. I know that he's going to say the same thing. That's why I'm confident that I can leave. I know that Steve's going to say the same thing when I'm not here. I know that Tom's going to say the same thing. I'm very fortunate because I have men around me who can stand here and what they will say is the same thing because they're working from the same scripture. Therefore, we're of one mind and one accord and one voice. With one accord, you may be with one voice that you may glorify God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the end of all our preaching is God and his glory and raising up Christ Jesus. That's the essential point. If somebody stands up here, okay, they're never going to stand up here because I'm not going to let them. If anybody stands in a pulpit somewhere and doesn't teach you about God and Christ, then really all he's doing is talking. All he's doing is opinionating. All he's doing is telling fishing stories and sports analogies. But he's not teaching you the important elements of God and Christ. That's what the one mind and one voice has to be all about. Wherefore, since you're of one mind and one voice, wherefore, accept one another. Paul began this chapter by saying, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his dialogue, on his opinions. Now here again at the end of this whole thing, he says, wherefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. It's interesting that Paul would form that analogy. He just said, Accept one another despite each other. Some may be weaker brothers. Some may be stronger brothers. Some may have various different traditions and opinions. Don't look down on each other. Don't judge one another. Don't pass judgment on the weak in faith. And he says to do all that because of your unity in Christ. If Christ has saved you and if Christ has saved them, then you both share a common spirit. Therefore, you ought to accept them rather than judge them and looking down on them. And then he uses Christ as your example. He said, don't just please yourself. And he said, because after all, Christ didn't just please himself. Christ could have just gone back to heaven. He said that. He said, I can call legions of angels. My father will come and defend me. I can do that. But instead, he sacrificed himself, 
made himself the sin offering for you, not to please himself. He went through the agony. He went through the beatings. He went through the nailing. He went through everything that he went through for you, not for his own pleasure. So Paul says, if Christ can be that for you, then you certainly ought to be like that for each other. Now he's saying the same thing again. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. Okay, so quick, Ming. See, I have to pick on somebody, and nobody sat up front enough that I, I know better than to pick on Jeff. I know the warfare that will break out. And so I, and I always seem to pick on Leon. Sorry, I just skipped one. He sits too close. So Ming, so what do you got? Why would God choose you? Why would Christ die for you? What was so good and extra special about you that Christ would give his life for you because, doggone it, it just wouldn't be heaven without you? What do you got? Nothing. Nothing. You, got, you just got nothing. That's the Pauline theology, but that's also the reality. When we look at ourselves, when we examine our own lives, when we look at our own faithfulness or our own goodness or our own forthrightness, we recognize that we're just weak and incapable. And if that is true of us, then there's nothing that any of us had that would cause Christ to come get us. And yet Christ accepted you. It's a very interesting word, especially because he's used it in terms of accepting the weaker brother. Accept the one who isn't as strong in faith. And then he says, look, Christ accepted you. That means that Christ did it for you by grace, not because of anything within you. Not because of your goodness or your strength or your ability to party hardy. I mean, there's just nothing in you that Christ said, oh, yeah, I got to have them. I went for the laugh just to see if you were still tracking with me. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Christ accepted you to the glory of God. And then when you accept others, when you accept the others that he has chosen, those others that he has saved, those others that he has drawn to himself, when you accept them, warts and all, despite their weakness, and you accept them, then you're doing that to the glory of God. I like everybody in the room, but let's assume for just a moment that there was somebody in the room that I didn't like. Did you just point at your husband? (laughs) That? (laughs) Wow. Your wife didn't just throw you under a bus. I mean, she went, got a bus, (laughs) brought it, lifted it, heaved it over you. All right, so let's assume I don't like Kenneth. Um, If it were based on our personalities, and actually Kenneth and I get along fine and our personalities are fine, but but let's say that there was something about Kenneth that that I just had a difficult time with. Well, then, if I accept him because he was saved by Christ, because we share a common spirit, because we're going to spend all of eternity together, I am not accepting him on the basis of him. I accept him for the glory of God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Christ accepted us to the glory of God. 
And so therefore we ought to accept one another, help one another, come alongside each other, encourage one another, lift one another up for the glory of God. That's your reason. That's your cause for doing it. That's your inspiration for why you would do it. Because there's nothing in Kenneth that would make you do it. But you do it for the glory of God. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Stop there. We're going to look at verse 8 in about a half an hour. We have to establish, because Paul is now going to make reference to the promises that God made to the forefathers. The promises that God made to the progenitors. And we have to get some sense of what are those promises. Now remember who Paul is and who he's writing to. Paul is a thoroughgoing Jew. Paul, on top of that, is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, his own description of himself, and that he was a Pharisee. He considered himself before the law to be blameless. He was deeply rooted in scripture, which you can see by how often he quotes scripture, the Old Testament, in order to establish the New Testament theology. Knowing all that, Paul is gathering all of his theology from the Old Testament. And when he makes reference to the promises that were made to the fathers, he's speaking about something very specific. He's not just saying generally God made some general promises to the fathers. He's speaking very specifically starting at the Abrahamic covenant, which is referred to over and over again, Old and New Testament, as the promises that God made to the fathers. Now, I can't just make that comment and keep moving. I need to prove that to you. Because my job is to teach you the Bible. So keep your finger there in Romans 15. Turn back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is the very first recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, we're going to start right at verse 1. I'm going to try to go through these quickly. There are seven recitations of the Abrahamic covenant. It moves from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, are referred to through the rest of the Bible as the fathers. They are the progenitors of national Israel. Now the Lord came to Abram and said, Go from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, Lot went with him. That is the first recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. The second recitation of the Abrahamic covenant is in Genesis 15, turn forward. Starting again right at the beginning of the verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring, 
one born in my house is going to be my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. And if you are able to count them, he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then Abram believed the Lord, verse 6, and God counted it to him, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who took you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I may possess it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for a certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. And afterwards, they will come out with great, with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I give this land. Past tense, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, to the river Euphrates, and the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite, and the Democrite. And they will, oh, I was just seeing if you were still listening. Okay, that's the second recitation of what is clearly called the Abrahamic covenant. He's made a covenant with Abram. Look at chapter 17. Go forward slightly. This is the third recitation. Now Abram was 90 years old and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless and I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. He's already told him how exceedingly. Like the stars of the heavens. Abram fell on his face and God talked to him saying... As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations out of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, 
Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. Look down at verse 18. This is the fourth recitation of the same covenant. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before me. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So now you see the Abrahamic covenant moving from Abraham to Isaac by God's own word. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you in this season next year. Move forward. Chapter 18, verse 17, the fifth recitation of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and a mighty nation. When God says something is surely definitely going to happen, you can count on it. Abraham will surely become a great and a mighty nation. And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. In order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then the Lord turned his attention to Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know that story. Move forward just a little bit. Chapter 22, starting at verse 14. Well, let's start at verse 13, just so you get the context. This is after Abram has been ready to sacrifice his son, his only son. And then Abraham lifts his eyes and sees a ram caught in a thicket, a substitute for his son's sacrifice. Abraham raised his eyes, says verse 13, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Gosh, a a ram of God with thorns around his head. Do I need to spell that one out? (laughs) And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Substitutionary atonement right there. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Because the Lord did provide a substitute for his son that day. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and they went together to Beersheba. One more recitation. Move forward just a little bit. As you have seen so far, we're going to chapter 28, by the way. As you've seen so far, the Abrahamic covenant moved from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. 
starting in Genesis 28. This is Jacob and Jacob's dream. And now God is talking to Jacob. So it's clear that the Abrahamic covenant has moved Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then to all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are referred to as the fathers. The forefathers who received the promises of God. Are you getting some sense of what that phrase, the promises of God, means? Yes. Mm-hmm. Chapter 28, verse 11. And he came to a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head and he lay down in that place. And he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold... The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and the east and the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Even though they're going to spread out to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, even though they're going to be among all the people groups of the earth, God promises, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, wherever I have scattered you, and I will bring you back to this very land, the one that I promised to Abraham, that I promised to Isaac, the very land that you're laying on right now, I will give you that land, for I will not leave leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You get a sense of the promises? That's why the land covenant is referred to as the land promise. Because God made a firm promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through them all the families of the earth would be blessed, but also that despite the fact that they would be scattered to the north, south, east, west, even though they would be scattered around the planet, God would find them, God would return them, and God would establish them again on this land. Now that promise is picked up by just about every prophet in the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament speak with one voice. They have that one mind thing going. And every one of them say that God is going to regather Israel and that he's going to bring them back to that land because the land belongs to them in perpetuity because God promised it to them as an everlasting covenant. And so that is part thematically of what all the prophets say. In 2 Kings 13, 22 and 23, this is when Hazael of Aram had oppressed Israel all the days when Jehoahaz was king. But the Lord was gracious to Israel, to them. He had compassion on them, and he turned to them to protect them because of the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. God, even though he knew sometimes that Israel deserved punishment from the hand of foreign kings, made sure not to wipe them out completely because God himself knew that he had made an everlasting covenant with those people and therefore he was going to be faithful to those people. Mm -hmm. Psalm 105 starting at verse 6 says, O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant 
forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute and to Israel as an everlasting covenant. That's David's opinion of it. David writes in the Psalms that this is an everlasting covenant that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as an everlasting covenant to a thousand generations. And he said, verse 11, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. David still sees the land promise as good. And then you go into the New Testament. I'm just picking and choosing here, skipping around a little bit just so you get a sense of it. That the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writers, they all recognized that the covenant that was made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to all Israel was an everlasting covenant that God could not break that included the land promise. Paul, writing in the book of Galatians, says the same thing, that the promises that were made to Abraham are not disavowed in any way. What I'm saying is this, says Paul in Galatians 3.17 The law that came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. You have to understand what the promise is. This is very important Hebrew language. The promise. All the Hebrews knew it. All the Jews knew it. All of Israel knew that they had the promise of that land. They had the promise of continuity with God because of covenants he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul, writing in the New Testament after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, still says those promises are still good because you can't nullify the promise. Even though the law came and the law went, the promise, he says, still good. And in fact, here in the book of Romans, back in Romans 9, in verse 4, when Paul was talking about what advantage the Israelites still had, He said, they are Israelites, so we know what the topic is. We don't have to re-identify what people he's talking to. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. So now he's identified what the promise is. He's identified the promise to them belong the patriarchs, the forefathers, and from them, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, and he is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so what's my point in going through all of that? There is this language all the way through the Bible and in Paul's writing, leading up to him writing here in the book of Romans, there is all this language of promise. And Paul knows what the promise is. Paul knows what promises he's talking about. He's talking specifically about the promises that are made to the forefathers. He's going to say it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant that's made with them that includes all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you and includes this land is yours. This land is yours forever. This land is yours in perpetuity. God promises all the way back in Deuteronomy. Back there in the Pentateuch, when God is taking Israel into the promised land, one of the final speeches, one of the final songs that Moses speaks to them 
is that God is going to do all of this blessing and cursing among them. And then he's going to scatter them. And then he's going to gather them again. I could read it to you. It's a fairly long passage. But all you need to know is that God keeps stating over and over again, this promise is firm. This promise can't be broken. This promise of land, this promise of blessing, this promise that all of the prophets of Israel have all spoken of as a coming reality cannot be changed. And even though Israel is scattered among the Gentiles, even though they're scattered around the world, Deuteronomy 30 says, even though I've scattered you to the north, south, east, west, I'm going to bring you back. I know where you are. I'm going to find you. I'm going to come and get you. If you understand everything I just said, and I expect you to remember all of it, if you get a feel for everything I've just said, then you can understand Romans 15, verse 8. Because this, to me, it's the final nail. To me, this is the rock-solid evidence. This is the Pauline theology that clears up any other conversation or any other debate. or any. This is it. This is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is while the church is in existence. Paul still says, For I say that Christ has become servant. That is the word diakonos. It's the word from which we get deacon. For I say that Christ has become the servant to the circumcision. Who's the circumcision in all Pauline language? The Jews, Israel. That's the circumcision. That's not even questionable or debatable. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, he says, became servant to Israel on behalf of the truth of God. Hold on to that phrase for a moment. He's saying that the reason Jesus made himself servant to Israel is to testify to the truth of God. What is the truth of God? Everything written in the Old Testament. Everything written in the scripture as Paul was writing. All that scripture that Paul said was God breathed, God inspired. That, he says, is the truth of God. So Christ became servant to Israel, to the circumcision On behalf of the truth of God to do what? To confirm the promises given to the fathers. There it is. There it is. is. You don't need any more than that. Anybody who continues to argue, well, you know, there's neither Jew, Gentile, male or female, free or bond in Christ. And therefore, God is done with Israel because in Christ there's neither Jew or Gentile. Here's Paul writing to the church and making distinction between Jew and Gentile. So those distinctions still exist. But look at what Paul has just said. This is such a deep theological reality. He said that Christ came, sacrificed himself, made himself a servant to Israel, to the circumcision, to confirm, to guarantee, to validate The promises of God that were given to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So then on what basis can we say, yeah, God's done with Israel. Yeah, it's all wrapped up. Once he got to the church, once he got to you and me, he's done with Israel. Once he established us, well, then we became the apple of his eye, and really there's no more place for Israel at all. That's not what the Bible says. It's just 
not. So much so, Paul's theology on this subject is so sure, so secure, so foundational that he can say that Christ himself is a servant to Israel to confirm the promises of God. And that is why Paul could say, in Christ, all the promises of God are yea and amen. That's why they're yes. That's why they're verily, verily, it shall be so. They are yes and amen in Christ. See, Christ didn't come to do away with, he already said. He didn't come to eradicate, to get rid of the law and the prophets. He said, I came to fulfill them. He fulfilled the law in his death, burial, and resurrection and the inception of the new covenant. He's still in the business of fulfilling all the promises of God, especially all the promises of God to Israel. He became servant to Israel on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. By the way, that means that if he does not keep those promises, God's not true. Jesus came to confirm the promises made to the fathers on behalf of the truth of God. The veracity of God is all tied up in what does God do with Israel. And yet so much of the church world these days is saying the exact opposite. And saying, well, God's done with Israel. And I keep arguing, well, then you're saying God isn't true. You're saying God told a story, but he's not going to keep it. He's not going to do it. So then they get busy and they try to spiritualize and they try to explain it. But there's no vagueness to the promise. You are the people. This is the land. I will gather you and bring you to this land. And that land belongs to you forever. That's not vague. That's not ultra spiritual. It's not hard to decipher. It's very, very clear on its face. And Paul says that the reason that Christ came as a servant, as a sacrifice for Israel to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God was to come and confirm the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How clear is that? Clear. If you say anything else, you're, what's that word? Wrong! That's that word I was looking for. If you're saying anything else, you're actually speaking opposite what the Bible says. And that would be, as I said earlier, just an opinion. That's not building from the foundation. The foundation is already laid. The word of God is already stating what it means to say. Our job is to align ourselves with what it says. But then this Jew-Gentile distinction, Christ became servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and he became servant to the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Completely different deal. He became servant to the circumcised because they had promises. They had covenants. Jesus came to confirm those covenants, to confirm those promises, to show that God is true. But when it comes to the Gentiles, we don't have that. We don't have the promises. We don't have the covenants. Every covenant you find anywhere in the Bible, it's Israel's. 
All the covenants belong to Israel. All the prophets belong to Israel. You might as well get used to the fact that historically all of these promises were made to Israel. So Jesus did not come and serve Gentiles because they had promises. Instead, he came because of mercy. See, when God does something to save a person who he has already committed himself to, that doesn't surprise me. That's God being God. That's God being faithful to people that he has already committed himself to. But what promise did you have, Tom? What covenants did he make with you? So how are you in the family of God? How do you end up receiving the Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal salvation? How do you end up with that? Well, the Bible keeps saying it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. It's mercy, it's kindness of God. It's not because he was obligated to you. And especially not obligated to you because you are a sinful, depraved, fallen Gentile. And I don't mean you specifically, but yes, I do. (laughs) For the Gentiles... He became servant to glorify God and for his mercy. As it is written, and now he's going to quote four phrases out of the Old Testament. As I said, Paul loves to go back to the extant scripture that was extant as he was writing. Go back to the scripture and again prove that the scripture does support what he's concluding. He's not making anything up. But it's really interesting what he's doing here. It stands written, he says. Because it stands written, he's saying this can't be broken. This can't be changed. The truth of God is already established by the fact that these things are written in the scripture. But then the quotations, if you look at them, one of them comes from the law of Moses. Remember, we've talked about the Tanakh. We've talked about the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, and we've talked about the three divisions of the Old Testament. Paul went back and chose a verse from all three sections so that he could demonstrate that the whole of the Old Testament says this. The whole of the Old Testament predicted the inclusion of Gentiles. The first quotation in Romans 15.9 is from David's Song of Deliverance. You're going to find that in 2 Samuel 22.50. It's also quoted in Psalm 18.49. The second quote is from Moses' farewell song to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 32.49. The third one is from the shortest psalm. Do you know what the shortest psalm is? 117. How many verses is it? Two. It's two whole verses. Yeah, it's really, really short. And yet, Paul went to that in order to pull the third quote. And the fourth quote is from Isaiah's messianic prophecy in Isaiah 11.10. So he's gone to the prophets, he's gone to the writing, he's gone to Moses in order to demonstrate that the inclusion of the Gentiles was promised in the scripture. It is written... Therefore, I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That would be Israel. So rejoice, O Gentile, with Israel. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples That means all the ethnos, all the 
Gentile peoples, let them praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles and in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, when I first looked at that, I thought, that's odd that Paul would jump around that way. He didn't put these in a chronological order, which it seems like he should. Uh, certainly, if that was me writing it, I would say, okay, now a quote from Moses, and then a quote from the writings, and then a quote from the prophets, and because that's the way the order is laid out in the Old Testament. But if you look at it closely, these particular quotes that he chose to use actually have a progress to them. And the progress is, first, I the Jewish person speaking, will give praise to God among the Gentiles. First, I'm going to be among the Gentiles, but even though I'm among them, I'm going to give praise to God, very much like Daniel and his fellows did. Even though they were among the Gentiles in Babylon, they still gave praise to God. That cost them a great deal, but they still did it. But then after that, the progress is, now the Gentiles start to rejoice. But with his people, his people are still included. So rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So first, his people go among the Gentiles, praise God. Then Gentiles start to praise God with his people. And then it progresses again. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the Gentile people, all the Goyim, all the different nations, let them all praise him. There's no mention of the Israelites there. That is the progress. If you look at it historically, God came to Israel first, revealed himself to Israel, and then Israel carried the message of God and Christ to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles learned to worship God, and then they worship God on their own. See the progress? And then Isaiah says, there's going to come a root of Jesse. That's obviously Christ. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So ultimately, the Gentiles are going to be saved by Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the same way that the Jews are going to be saved by Christ, the Jewish Messiah. In him, all the promises of God are yea and amen. But as the Jews, as Israel continue to worship God, they're going to bring their blessings and their worship to the Gentile nations, and the Gentile nations are going to learn to worship God, and then ultimately they're going to do it on their own, and they are going to be saved by the root of Jesse, who is ultimately going to establish his kingdom and rule over all the Gentile nations, exactly like all the prophets have always said is going to happen, and in him the Gentiles are also going to hope. We're going to hope in a Jewish Messiah. See that? See how smart Paul is? Do you, do you see the wisdom of what he's doing there? Even in the particular verses he was selecting, he was teaching the history of God's revelation of himself to people of earth. So now, knowing all that, Paul then says, Now may the God of hope, the one who causes people to hope, who causes people to persevere, who encourages people, that God, who is the one that the Gentiles are going to hope in, now may that very God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Suddenly the message became emotional. 
See, it started intellectual. It even became a little bit experiential in the middle. But the end of it is emotional. The end of it is the God of peace is going to fill you with this hope and with this joy and with this peace. How? In believing. And if you believe in Christ and if you believe in the promises of God and if you believe in a God who is true and consistent in every promise he ever made, including the promises he made to the forefathers, if you can have that kind of confidence in that God, then you know that whatever comes to you in this lifetime, you're going to get through it. Because he's the God that's going to make you persevere, and he's the God who's going to encourage you, and he's the God who's going to give you hope. In fact, Paul identifies him as that God, the God of hope. And if that's the state that you are living in, that's going to bring you joy and peace. So look, I went through a whole lot of Bible history and a whole lot of theology and a whole lot of reading this morning to get you down to that one point, which is a God who can do that. A God who has that kind of control of human history. That God can handle your life. He can handle your bills. He can handle your fears. He can handle your diseases. That God only expects you to trust him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope, not just kind of hopeful, but that you are overflowing with this confidence of what you know is coming, this hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You could not have that kind of hope were it not for God and the Holy Spirit. But God gives that kind of hope to his people. And if he has given you that kind of hope and confidence based on the word, based on the scriptures, based on what you know of God and his revelation of himself, if he has given you that kind of hopefulness and that kind of peace and that kind of joy, then you can leave here today not remembering the details, but remembering, oh yeah, I'm in the hand of a really, really sovereign God who keeps his promises. Praise the, Lord. the God of hope. You get that? Then I'm done. And we are going to sing holy, holy, holy. So Steve, if you would come up here and lead it.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.